Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the contingency plan for dealing with cyber disasters, the essence of zero trust in the intelligence community, and time to build software like warships. It's Wednesday, October 19th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Today's the Cybersecurity Summit presented by Trellix, FedScoop, and CyberScoop. In case you couldn't be there today, you'll get some highlights of that event on today's show. First, a look at cybersecurity from the National Security Agency. Rob Joyce is the Director of Cybersecurity at NSA. In this highlight of his speech at the summit, he talks about the mission of his organization. We've developed partnerships with those vital technology providers, those infrastructure providers, who can then take action at scale. So our mission is working to protect the defense industrial base. That's one of the authorities and and the set of resources Congress gives us. Um, And and we wanna do that for literally, those are hundreds of thousands of companies inside the US um, have contracts, work for the defense department in some form or fashion in that ecosystem. So that's a broad remit. But as broad as that is, When we work with those upstream telecommunications providers, infrastructure providers, hyperscale cloud providers, and we work together to understand um, a a piece of tradecraft or block a piece of exploitation malware, um, that then scales out into the whole ecosystem. So we get, to, we get to expand and provide that protection well beyond the defense industrial base. Um, and, and what we see is um, when, we, when we set up that, uh, that protection, protecting us protects you. So as we reach out and get that scale through industry, protecting us protects you. So we had 8,500 analytic exchanges to date this year out of the Cybersecurity Collaboration Center. And when I say um, analytic exchanges, I don't mean one IOC, here's a, here's a bad domain, here's an IP, here's a hash for a piece of malware. What I'm really talking about is an ongoing conversation where an analyst from NSA is sitting down with an analyst from industry and chasing a specific lead and following that through back and forth in an iterative fashion where we both ratchet to understand much, much better than either of us is going to get get to um, by ourselves. And then when the magic happens is industry can often take um, and, and choose on their own prerogative to clean bad activity off their ecosystem. And again, that branches out and that protects so much more. So the fourth area I highlighted was you can develop resiliency skills. Uh, Ukraine has been under attack for many, many years. Um, you, you look and their, their electric grid, their government agencies, their business and industry, they've all been hit um, in this ongoing cyber conflict with Russia, which stretched back years. I mean, if you think about it, the origin story of NotPetya is the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Um, and, and, and that was impactful for everybody across the globe. So what we're seeing is Russia has been been squeezing and pressurizing the IT industry, the, the network defenders, the people who protect in Ukraine. And, and over that time, they've taught them. They've taught them that they need to have develop and, and, and expand their skills in hardening. They need to figure out how to do 
incident response. They need to detect malicious activity at a scope and scale that a lot of us haven't had to deal with, frankly. So they've built those resiliency skills. Some of the most important things they've built are the ability to just get backups and understand how to recover a system. So they come in, a wiper attack hit, I'm gonna restore from backup, I'm gonna rebuild that server, I'm gonna move on, right? The, the resiliency that they've developed and shown is really spectacular. So I think we can take a page out of their book in understanding that you get resilience through thoughtful practice. Um, they practiced and built these resiliency skills and I would say you can too. Fifth area, don't go it alone. Um, Industry rallied around Ukraine. Um, they really provided security services. Um, as this threat started to materialize in Ukraine, whole processes were lifted up from servers that physically resided in Ukraine, and they were moved to the hyperscale cloud providers. Right? They were pulled out of what were likely kinetic targets inside Ukraine and put into redundant data centers over here, um, often in the US to be away from the physical conflict. So they knew that you know, the, the servers themselves would not be subject to physical attacks. They would have sustained power. But more importantly, they got security teams at scale, right? You and I, if we have a server in the back room, aren't there 24 seven. We aren't there with teams of hundreds and hundreds of people. We don't benefit from the near neighbor inside that same ecosystem getting attacked and understanding the tradecraft to look to see if it's being applied to us. Uh, so, so that move to large-scale providing, which comes with large-scale security, um, really is a, big, um, is a big deal. So don't try to go it alone. Really get your security at scale. And then the last point was, you have not planned enough for contingencies. Um, I think industry woke up to the conflict. We knew in advance there was going to be an invasion and they started to worry about what it meant. They had operations and systems and servers and network connectivity um, inside Ukraine. So the worry was if something um, worm-like hit in Ukraine, was it going to go to the whole ecosystem? Right? So, so there were decisions being made about firewalls and connections and servers and business operations and continuity for the, for the Ukrainian side. There were also people who had business ventures in Russia. And the question was, would they be allowed to continue? Would they be the source of, um, of, of attacks and the pathway um, into some of this conflict? And then finally, there were real people on both sides, right? The industry was worried about their people in Russia. Could they get them out of the political pressure and the things that were being pushed in that environment? And the people in Ukraine, could they keep them safe if a Russian army was coming in and there were going to be bombs and missiles literally falling in the city, right? So those were all things facing these companies and they had to plan through them at an emergency pace and develop contingencies. So now that everybody's been through that drill once, I invite you to now think about the, the China-Taiwan tensions we've got. And if this were not Russia and Ukraine, you scratch them out and replace them with China-Taiwan, what are you going to do? What decisions you, do you need to make about your people, your processes, your connections? 
Um, where are your vulnerabilities in that space? So I would encourage you do that thought exercise. It's a little hard, right? It's going to give you a knot in your stomach, but, but it's better to think about that today. Then after you've gone through it once and thought about who needs to be involved, plan a tabletop. Run that scenario with your C-suite or your, your board and talk about the hard decisions you would wish you'd make today to be doing something today to get ready for those kind of contingencies so that you're not planning it on the fly. You've got a playbook. You might have an architecture that supports. You may make business decisions today um, when you're not in the heat of that battle. So I'd point out our adversaries right now, they have worldwide reach, right? We're all in this together. They integrate globally across the domains. The consequences of those cyber operations really transcend international borders. Um, if I get and return a little bit to the nation state threats, we've had two decades of the terror threats um, that have dominated our discussion of risk around here. We have gotten to the point now, we've got to start talking about nation state risks again. Um, the growing civil impact of these wars, the idea that it, it's all common terrain and we're gonna see those pressures from outside push inside. So from that, if you're a thought leader, I would say the advice I have is um, go ahead as a leader and show this is a priority to think strategically. And then second, work to give the teams who defend your online presence resources. Um, because I think leadership and resources result in security. The people who are doing it best have those two magic ingredients, leadership and resources. So I thank you for your time today, hopefully giving you some things to think about. Try that, try that offsite, do that, do that tabletop exercise um, because I think you will, you will be better off um, thinking about it. It's real, it's real leadership. It's going to give you resourcing decisions. Thank you. Rob Joyce of the National Security Agency. You can find a link to watch his entire speech in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Salesforce brings the public sector and customers together in the digital age to access the new Veteran Mental Health and Resiliency Resources module. Go to trailhead.salesforce.com. The intelligence community has access to cutting-edge cyber intelligence that it shares with the rest of the federal government. Brian Miller is the IC Chief Information Officer, Cybersecurity Group Director at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. He tells moderator Scott Montgomery of Federal Resources how that collaboration in the IC and outside of it works. What we try and do is, is find ways to funnel that information out, um, particularly through groups like uh, CISA, uh, and, and things like that where we can take our information and uh, perhaps we, we have, for example, a report uh, that uh, generates information with uh, maybe things like uh, TTPs and sort of how someone may be, may be doing something as well as uh, indica indicators of compromise or uh, initial indicators of compromise, uh, things that, that would allow us to uh, impact uh, signature-based uh, capabilities uh, easily. And, and what we'll do with reports like that, there may be some classified component to that. And, and what we'll look at is, uh, and, and I think some folks here will probably be familiar with this process, we'll institute a tear line process where sort of above the line is the 
uh, classified version of events and, and information. Uh, but below the tear line is the, the basically the bottom line information that, that can be released. And it, it may be released in such a way that it's not clear that it came from um, sources within the intelligence okay. community. Uh, but, but we do try and push those things out and get that information released um, to help everyone better protect themselves and, and better uh, interoperate in this sort of crazy world that we're in. It, it, that key word, I think, is context. Um, and when you're doing that analysis, does some of that context that helps with beyond the IOC make it below the line, as you say? Um, sometimes, but certainly not always. Okay. Uh, you know, obviously, for, for the intelligence community, we, we do have uh, a range of protections that we have to employ for sources and methods. And so, when it comes to those sort of things, we do try and keep that uh, information pretty tight, um, you know, for a range of reasons is, uh, that, that uh, can go from really honestly protecting sources uh, and to uh, just protecting the, the way that we collect the information so that that uh, does not become clear and we can then continue to collect that information uh, over time. But, uh, I think we, we, we do try and do our best to get as much information out as we, as we possibly can. It, it's interesting. It, obviously, the conflict in Ukraine offers a, a, a significant lens into Russian and other state-sponsored activities. On the home front, the landscape may be different, but the adversary is often the same. Uh, we hear all the time about the benefits of cyber threat intelligence collection and dissemination. Uh, we also hear constantly in IG reports, uh, in the ODNI zone report, about how the, the sharing aspect needs to be increased. How do you do that safely from your chair? So it's a really tough thing in, in a lot of ways. Um, and again, part of it, I think, is, is uh, generating the attitude that you know, we're, we're going to try and share as much as we can and, and try and get that populated. There's certainly been a, uh, uh, at times uh, within the IC, you know, oh, we, we really need to protect our data, we need to protect this information, but uh, it's becoming clear as, as time moves on, right, that, that uh, we've, we've got to help everyone in the best ways that we can. And so that's where we're, we're, we're really constantly looking at ways that we can take, uh, and in some cases even automate some of our intelligence processes in such a way that we can we can get to some of that bottom line information that that can be released and that can be uh, let go um, it, it becomes a little more complex you know when you're talking beyond like indicators and, and, and signatures and, and things like that and when you're really talking about uh, TTP is that that may take a little more analytical oversight to look at uh, how much of this can we talk about and, and, and what what are we releasing if we, if we talk about these things? But it is uh, still very important for us to do that and to go through that process uh, in ways uh, that, we, that we can. And, and we certainly try and share uh, as much as we can across the, uh, across the intelligence community. But again, we've got a heavy focus as well on getting the information down, getting the information out, uh, getting it to folks like CISA or others that can get it out to you extremely wide, uh, wide population. And, and, and just for context, that sharing, you believe, it's across all barriers, industry, uh, coalition partners, small businesses, enterprise businesses. 
Yes, we, we have um, a, a range of different uh, ways that we both pull and push information, because obviously we're also sort of general cyber threat intelligence consumers sure. as well, right? We, we, we utilize a lot of the automated feeds and, and other things that are available to, to everyone, so we're, we're pulling that data in. But again, we really look to, to push that data back. We have uh, pretty regular engagements with uh, a range of, of allied partners uh, as well. Um, you know, we have the whole Five Eyes concept that's in use uh, within the IC, uh, where, where there's a, a, a good degree of information sharing uh, available, but there's also specific information sharing that does uh, occur, uh, I would say more or less on a case-by-case -case basis, depending on circumstances that may be going on around the world, and sometimes that's driven by DOD in the case of conflict-driven information sharing. And other times it's based upon uh, maybe more specific information requirements or needs or asks from, from other mission partners that we may have. That's awesome. I, we heard earlier from Mr. Joyce, he said, don't go it alone. Right. Uh, and, right. And, and I think that it's great to hear that it sounds like you endorse that message as well. A absolutely. Okay. This, is a, this is, we're all facing common threats. In, in such a range of ways, and, and it's important for us to get together as, as much as we possibly can to, to fight and combat those threats. Uh, your own background uh, in, in incident response and forensics, you know, it's great that the, the gap between the number of trained practitioners and the number of openings uh, in government is, is, is at least flattening, it's starting to close a tad. But incident response and forensics is one where the gap isn't closing that much. Right. And I, I'd love to understand, what are some of the ways you see to assist those IR teams? Is it, is it process improvement? Is it common toolkits? Is it shared TTPs? Is it all of the above? Where do you see the, the best bang for the buck? So I mean, there's an element of all the above there, without a doubt. And, and I've done... Uh, incident response uh, related work, cyber defense work for, for a couple of different IC uh, agencies over the years and think, um, you know, I'm particularly like in, in 24 hour uh, operation centers or areas where you've got uh, your frontline cyber defenders. Uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of SOPs for all the regular sort of common stuff. So when a new guy comes in, there is something to guide them and, and to help them with, with their initial to, to sort of the understanding, hump. yeah, yeah, to get them up to speed a little a little faster. Um, I think another thing that that's important is, um, you know, as as you had, had touched on, is the the importance of the tool sets that are being used to help and to guide the the analyst as they're looking through the data, provide helpful links and helpful hints, and you know, this has occurred. Therefore, check these three things. You know, those types of 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 assistances within the tool sets themselves uh, can be can be very helpful. Uh, you know, another thing that I think is is important when we're talking about uh, incident responders is, um, and I'm just going to mimic uh, something that was said in in one of the earlier uh, panel groups. Um, you know, sometimes the you know we we and and we do this. I think terribly in, in, the, in the government, uh, we, you know, we push for the college degrees and we push for, for things like that when often those, those initial incident responders uh, may be very well, uh, those positions can be very well filled by people with 
with, with just specific skill sets that are coming in from the military or other places that they maybe don't have the college degree, but they do have uh, sufficient IT-based skill sets. And you know, I, I've, I've always said I can take an IT, an IT person, a person who has the basic IT skill sets, and then uh, if I can pair that, particularly with someone who has a, a curious and analytical mindset, that's all I need to get them very quickly up to speed and make a very, very good incident responder uh, out of that individual. And that, that analytical curiosity is probably one of the key drivers that, that we look for uh, when we're looking for someone to fulfill those types of, of incident responder roles. Someone's always thinking about the next question sure. and, and how to, uh, you know, I've looked at this, but what if I look at these three other things that correlate that data? Then what answer do I have? Okay. It's interesting. The, you know, obviously, standard operating procedures are one thing, but, but where the TTP comes from is almost from that intellectually curious person. Yes, yes. Uh, and I'm curious, do you believe that there's an above the line and below the line in that kind of TTP sharing as well? There, there is, uh, because a lot of the, I'd say a lot of the TTP-related uh, information that we get, um, th that does have a very delicate, often very delicate, um, intelligence sources and methods information associated with uh, how do we understand this TTP? How do we get the information that shows us what they're doing uh, and how they're doing it? Uh, and so when we break that down into some uh, lower level, this is what we can share about this. Um, there is a complexity there without a doubt. Uh, it, it, oh, I think we have time for one more okay. thing. M Mr. Joyce also said he has, at NSA, there's an evolving view of protecting sources and methods. And that last thing that you mentioned, it sounds like there's an ODNI evolving view on protecting sources and methods. Do you, do you think that's a fair characterization? Um, I, do, I do think that's a fair characterization, right? We're, we're, we're looking at a, a world where information sharing is, is just growing and growing. And, you know, we're, we're trying to find ourselves uh, as, a, as an overall, as an intelligence community, uh, looking more and more at the, uh, you know, the, the zero trust model of, of information technology and less the, you know, we're going to build these castle walls and have this impenetrable, sure. you know, network perimeter, but, but really we, we need to be able in some cases to operate in environments that are not trusted environments and so we need to find trust in other ways and, and embed trust further down into the data, into the, the, the endpoints, into the users, and into the accesses those users have. Brian Miller of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence with moderator Scott Montgomery. You can find a link to watch the video of that conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Salesforce brings the public sector and customers together in the digital age. The number one CRM, Salesforce Customer 360 for Public Sector, enables relationship management, case management, and lots more. You can learn more at salesforce.com slash government. The Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall, is directing the Space Force to ramp up its cyber protections. That emphasis is heavy, especially in the satellite field. Aaron Bishop is the Chief Information Security Officer of the Air Force. He says the evolution of security is moving faster than ever. And things are evolving so fast that we need to be able to say, well, what is it that we're trying to do, not only today, but have a better vision of where we're going? Because this whole job of cybersecurity and cybersecurity protection is evolving. So in that kind of frame of mind, let's kind of think about what is cyber. For those that are graybeards like me and say, hey, um, there was a 
rainbow books way back in the day, and that was a compliance world, right? We had something we had to meet and get the approval to actually do the IT. But then we realized that that glove, that cyber glove of compliance didn't fit everybody. My hand might be too big, hand might be too small. Some systems didn't have a hand at all. And so from that perspective, it evolved to risk management. My problem with that is if I went into the room today and I asked 10 random people, what is cyber risk? I'm gonna make a bet that I'm gonna get about a half a dozen answers for each of you. And that'd be 60 answers total for what real cyber risk is. Because we haven't really evolved to getting that nailed down and being very good about it. And because of that, we have a hard time managing that risk over time. So if I can't capture it, I can't measure it, I can't understand it, and we aren't on the same vernacular, it makes it very difficult to defend that. But that's where we are as an industry. We focus on, it's risk management. That's what we do in cyber. But I articulate that I'm watching the industry, and the industry is moving toward, I want threat intelligence and be able to respond quickly. Is that proactive or is that reactive? It's reactive, right? And by the way, IT isn't the only game in town anymore. Operational technologies of all types, ICS, SCADA, CPS, just go down the list, even medical devices. They're all connected. Everything is connected now. So that means we need a digital environment, not IT anymore. We, it is a digital environment. And if you have that, where do we need to go? Not so much from about compliance, not so much about risk management, what's next on that continuum? Resiliency. So I, I challenge everybody to go read the NIST 800-160 Volume 2. That one document is their flagship document in my estimation. It is the document that goes and explains how do you design for resilience? And what does that really mean in a cyber context? Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not gonna say we're at war because that's not my job. But I will say this, all our technology, our digital environment, is in a contested space. You're getting attacked every day, both your commercial, your consumer, as well as the government systems. Because it's in a contested space and because it's getting attacked all the time, you have to be resilient. So what does that word resilient in cyber really, really mean when we're talking about this contested space? That means when somebody's messing with your system, it continues to do what it's supposed to do. Well, we see that today that that's not the case. We've got ransomware taking systems down left and right. Distributed DOSs are still happening out in the world. There's insider threat. There's, I mean, we can go down the list. So much so that you can't articulate what is that cyber risk. And I keep coming back to that because who's the best at dealing with risk, any risk? It's the insurance industry. And if you've been reading the news, Lloyd's of London and a bunch of other big Insurance firms are getting out of the cyber business because they can't put actuarial tables to it. They can't define it. So their answer is we have to start thinking not about the reactive, not about the cyber threat and the instant response perspectives. Those are good skills to have. We need them, but we can't base our cybersecurity on that alone. We must get to the beginning of the cycle when we acquire and build and we have to start driving resilience in the engineering design from the beginning. Some people might say, oh, that makes perfect sense. Oh, baked in security, I got it, good to go. But do you really understand what that means? Because from my perspective and the seat that I sit in, 
I have to define what those thresholds are. And everyone's always poking me saying, you're making this too hard. There's just too much stuff to do. Well, again, you're in a contested environment. They're going to get in. Are you going to build to keep them out? Or if they do get in, that they can't do any damage so that you can continue doing the job you're supposed to do. That's what I want everyone to take away from today for me is we in the Department of the Air Force are focusing on how do we define what that resilience is up front so that when we start designing and building or updating systems, we're building in things like these buzzwords you hear, zero trust, better ICAM and identity, all of those things are to build the layers so that we can be more resilient. Because have no illusion, the contested environment is happening today, and God forbid if we have to do something where the military has to be engaged in a kinetic activity, it's going to be very contested. And we don't want to be fragile because we were sitting there saying, oh, we took the risk on it. Well, I got news for you. If you actually go read, the law says I'm supposed to put, do due diligence to show how I got to my answer. It's called the Evidentiary Act of 2016. It's tied to all of our accreditations. If that's true, then I can't just skip it. I can't put human bias into this equation. I can't say I'm taking the risk. I have to go and build resilience. I have to show I did my due diligence. And the way I articulate that, and I'll leave you with this thought. When we go and build a house, you have to start with a foundation. Foundation can't be crooked. It's got to be plumb and level. It's got to have it, all the utilities roughed in. Has to be the, according to code or whatever you build on it, it's going to collapse. The fact of the matter is I don't care whether you build a Tudor, a Cape Cod, a Colonial, bay windows, bump outs. I don't care. That's where you get to innovate. That's where you get to have fun. But the foundation, I'm going to set because otherwise the whole house of cards will come crumbling down when you get in a contested environment. Some people call that compliance. Fine, call it compliance. But then you got to use the rest of that continuum. What is the risk of putting a bay window out on the second floor? What is the risk of building a steep pitched house versus a, a flat top house? What is the risk of doing all these things that you want to do? And then once you capture that risk and start managing that, and how do you manage risk over time? It's about prioritizing. I know I got these 10 things I got to do. The most impactful one is the one I'm going to do first, and we're going to keep going down. It's threat informed, so I know where my threats are in that risk area. But I'm building toward resilience because the name of the game is survivability. And in the digital world, whether you're connected as an OT, whether you're connected as IT, if you can't survive, then you don't have a system. So it's as simple as that. From my perspective, that's the way uh, we see it in, in the Department of the Air Force. And we're driving all our strategies and activities in the risk management game, as well as the compliance world, all of them coming together to create that kind of model. Acquisition communities who are buying and building for us, whether it's a weapon, whether it's IT or OT, here's where I want you to be. The objective is survivability. You need to build the resilience in as you go, and we'll manage the risk together over time so that you're compliant as a byproduct of the effort. You're not focused on compliance. It just happens because you know what you're doing. Aaron Bishop, the CISO at the Air Force. You can find a link to the video of his speech in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. 
The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.